0: And so this morning we'll continue to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord.
1: The Sermon on the Mount is the longest and most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. And it begins with this passage we just read, which is called the Beatitudes. Uh, This morning, we are finishing our study of the Beatitudes, which means it's a really good time to remind ourselves, what are the Beatitudes all about? Maybe one of the simplest ways of thinking about it is like this. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us an aspirational identity. What's that? An aspirational identity is a picture of the ideal self, of the self you aspire to be. We live in a world in which our minds and our hearts and our imaginations are constantly being shaped by images and pictures that claim to show us the good life. For instance, whenever you see an ad on TV or on social media, they're never just selling you a product or a service. They're selling you an identity. They're saying, do you see this person? This is the good life. Don't you want to be like them? Of course you do. If you buy this product or or buy this service, then you too can be like this person. And the crazy thing about this is we all know how this works, don't we? And yet we fall for it all the time because the images and the pictures are so powerful. The Beatitudes give us a picture of the ideal life, of the self we aspire to be. But the thing is, when we look at this picture, this is not a self any of us would aspire to be spiritually destitute, grieving, powerless, starving for justice. None of us wants to be those things. And especially none of us wants to be the last thing, which is what we're looking at this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Who wants to be any of that? The answer is no one. That is not an identity or a self that any of us would ever aspire to. So here's the big question. Is Jesus crazy? Is he just out of touch with reality? Or is Jesus wicked? Is this some kind of skullduggery in which he's perpetrating actual harm on us? Or what if Jesus knows something that we don't know? What if Jesus is able to see more of reality than we are able to see? Friends, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is offering us a life, an ideal life. And he's saying, if you want this life, then you have to embrace this part of it. It's a a picture of the ideal life. The Sermon on the Mount is um, all about what is the good life? What is the truly blessed life? And and it begins with the Beatitudes, which is a picture of of the ideal life, but that includes persecution. Jesus is saying, if you want this life, then you have to embrace this part of it. But if you do, then there is a life available to you. There is a joy waiting for you beyond anything you can possibly imagine. How? Well, let's explore that by looking at three things this morning. We're going to see the inevitability of persecution. We're going to see our resistance to persecution. And lastly, we're going to see the joy of persecution. Okay? The, um, the inevitability, the res- our resistance, and the joy of persecution. Okay? First, the inevitability of persecution. Uh, one of the really interesting things about the Beatitudes is that up until this point, uh, Jesus has been speaking kind of abstractly. All of the Beatitudes have a pattern, and the pattern, the pattern is they're all in the third person. So if you remember basic grammar, first person is I, me. Second person is you, yours. And third person is they, them. All of the Beatitudes are in the third person. They're they're very abstract. So Jesus is saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, or here, blessed are those who are persecuted. It's all third person, all very abstract. It could be anybody. But then in verse 11, Jesus breaks the pattern. He says, Blessed are you. He goes second person. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. All of a sudden, Jesus is getting really personal. In fact, this really comes out um, when you see um, what he says back in verse uh, uh, 11. Uh, not only, Jesus is telling us that, um, that persecution is inevitable because notice he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Not if, but when they persecute you. In other words, Jesus is saying, um, if you follow me, then, then, then one of the things it means in following me is that it, it's going to mean following me into persecution. It's, it's going to happen. It's the inevitability of persecution. But not only that, Jesus is not only showing us that we will be persecuted, he also shows us why we'll be persecuted. So if you look back at verse 10, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Righteousness. Now, we looked at this word a few weeks ago when we were studying the fourth beatitude, which says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you were with us, you'll remember that we saw what righteousness is. Righteousness is a justice done by you. Righteousness is a justice done by you. That means it's not just about our personal spiritual habits like prayer or fasting or Bible study. Righteousness is a social thing. It's a relational thing. It's about how we're treating other people. And especially it's about caring for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. Uh, Righteousness is about doing justice in the world. Righteousness is a justice done by you. Jesus is saying that if you are following him faithfully, if you're living like that in this world, then you will inevitably experience persecution. And it's precisely here that we bump up into a big disconnect with our culture, because as modern Western people, when we look at this, we think, well, why would living like that provoke persecution? Of course we should care for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. Everybody knows that. But here's what's so amazing about this, especially if you're exploring faith in Jesus this morning. In the ancient world, everybody did not know that. And it's not because they didn't believe in things like moral truth or justice, and we're just so much more woke than they were. Let's not flatter ourselves. In fact, unlike our modern age, ancient people actually did believe in things like absolute moral truth and justice. Unlike us, ancient people never said things like, well, you know, everybody has to decide what's right and wrong for themselves. Murder for me, it's, personally for me, it's wrong, but who am I to say that murder is wrong for anybody else? Ancient people never talked like that. They believed in absolute moral truth and justice, but the way they applied those things in society was very different from how we apply it. Why? Frederick Nietzsche was one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. Uh, he was also an excellent historian, and he was an atheist Nietzsche hated Christianity, but one of the things he was constantly pointing out was the big difference between ancient morality and Christian morality. Nietzsche was always pointing out that ancient morality is based on things like pride, strength, uh, dominating your enemies, and preserving authoritarian power structures. However, he said that um, Christians introduced a whole new moral system that was based on things like humility, compassion for your enemies, caring for the poor and the oppressed, and correcting power imbalances in society. Nietzsche was, was constantly saying that, that those things are in our culture because of Christianity. Now, he was pointing this out 150 years ago, but today there are even more people pointing this out. For instance, Tom Holland Uh, not the Spider-Man actor, but the world-renowned British historian, he just came out with a book recently called Dominion. It's all about how Christianity transformed the world, and especially about how it transformed our modern moral imagination. Towards the end of the book, he he surveys uh, the last five to ten years of cultural history And he says that if you go and you look at at the various human rights movements throughout society like the LGBTQ movement or the Me Too movement, he says Nietzsche foretold it all. He says that if you go and you trace the moral genealogy of these human rights movements, he says this, the trace elements of Christianity continued to infuse people's morals and presumptions so utterly that many failed even to detect their presence like dust particles so fine as to be invisible to the naked eye they were breathed in equally by everyone Uh, believers atheists and those who never paused so much as to think about religion had it been otherwise then no one would ever have got woke in other words tom holland nietzsche many other historians they're all pointing out the same historical reality that our moral imagination exists because it comes to us from the Christian moral imagination. That means that, that when ancient Christians did things like uh, rescuing babies from trash heaps, or when they treated women and slaves as social equals and empowered them with leadership roles in the church, which they did, they were persecuted because they were upsetting the cultural norms of the day, which actually helps us understand what persecution means for us today, because the ancient Christians were challenging the cultural idols of their age, but every age has cultural idols. So even though in our age we embrace things like social equality or caring for the poor, if we challenge the cultural idols of our day, that means that we also will encounter persecution. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the inevitability of persecution. But next, we need to look at our resistance to persecution. Because here's the thing. Just when you think you understand Jesus, Jesus is always inviting you to go deeper. Jesus is always pressing past our actions and into our hearts. So, um, for instance, we look in, in this passage. In uh, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. But then in verse 11, he repeats that same basic idea, but then he expands and deepens it. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. Now, here's the big question. Um, are, Are we going to be persecuted because of righteousness or because of Jesus? And the answer is yes. In other words, there is no true righteousness, there is no true justice, um, apart from a deep connection and allegiance to Jesus. That means that it's never just about what we do, it's about what we worship. It's never just about our behavior, it's about what has the deepest love of our hearts. And if you love, serve, and follow anything other than Jesus as ultimate, then that thing, whatever it is, is an idol. Now, we talk a lot about idolatry here at Central West End Church, but we need to keep coming back to it because Jesus and the Bible keep coming back to it. What is idolatry? Christopher Wright is a wonderful Old Testament scholar, and he has a really helpful brief definition of idolatry. Christopher Wright says that idolatry dethrones God and enthrones creation idolatry dethrones god and enthrones creation in other words idolatry always looks for something in the created world enthrones it and worships it rather than worshiping and enthroning the god of creation now uh, let's make sure we understand some things god created this world and he called it good That, that means this whole created world creation is full of good things idolatry isn't about enthroning bad things but the very best things Idolatry takes the very best things in this world and enthrones them. It worships them. Uh, we also need to understand that this happens at a cultural level before it ever happens at an individual level. Idolatry always begins as cultural idolatry before it ever becomes individual idolatry. That's why it's so hard to see. That's why we're so blind to It's because all of this stuff is immersed in our culture. We're like fish swimming in water. We don't even know we're wet. So in the same way that it's, it's very difficult for us to see the influence of cultural um, Christian morality in our culture, uh, in the same way it's also very difficult for us to see the idolatrous distortions in our culture because we are just immersed in our culture. So let me give you some um, practical examples of this in real time so you can see how this works. For instance, individual freedom is a good thing, right? It's good to honor the personal... Freedom of individual persons. But here's the thing there's a difference between honoring individual freedom and enthroning individual freedom. And in our culture, we have enthroned individual freedom. It is a cultural idol. Do you see how this works? What are some other idols in our culture? Well, things like political power, economic independence, material comfort, sexual freedom. And again, these are good things. By by nature, there's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with a well-ordered society or economic security or sexual fulfillment. God created us to enjoy these things. But there's a big difference between enjoying these things and enthroning these things. And in our culture, we have enthroned these things. Now, here's how all of this relates to persecution. If your ultimate devotion and allegiance is to Jesus then then following him is going to mean unmasking and exposing the idols of our culture and and bearing witness to the loving rule of God in our lives and in this world. Do you not think that that will incur the wrath of society and, and result in persecution? Of course it will. Whenever we resist political idolatry or economic idolatry or sexual idolatry or any kind of idolatry, Uh, it's always going to result in persecution. There's always going to be at least some level of pushback on those things. So here's what this means for us. That means there is a tension for us here in America, because on the one hand, we are citizens of a democratic nation with a First Amendment right to religious liberty. But on the other hand, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that before you're anything else, first and foremost, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, and we have a primary task to bear witness to his kingdom in this world. There is a tension between those two things. And so here's one of the things we need to understand. Uh, you know, in, here in America, none of us is going to be um, imprisoned or executed because of our Christian faith. So, when we discuss the various religious liberty questions um, in our culture right now, and they are serious questions that need to be seriously addressed, but when Christians talk about these things in terms of persecution, uh, at best, that's tone deaf, and at worst, it, deeply offensive to minority groups who actually have experienced persecution in this country, often at the hands of Christians, but also to Christians around the world who really are being imprisoned and executed for their faith. That means there's a tension for us here. Now, that said, that um, there are always going to be consequences, uh, even in our culture, for faithfully following Jesus. So if you look at the history of America, um, up until about 50 years ago, the default cultural norm here in America has been white Protestant Christianity. That has been the default cultural norm. Um, However, over the last 50 years, that that has shifted dramatically, especially in the cities and in the elite institutions of our society. Christianity no longer enjoys the same level of cultural power and privilege that it once had. Now, I just want to say, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's certainly nothing that we should be um, afraid of. In fact, if you look at the early Christians, uh, the early church, they didn't have any cultural power. They didn't have any political power. And yet they transformed the ancient world. They weren't losing sleep at night over their lack of cultural and political power. In the same way, we should not be anxious or afraid about, about the loss of cultural and political privilege and power that Christianity has in this world. In fact, the gospel has always flourished most in society when it has had the least amount of power over society, now here's what this looks like for you and me today. Though, um, remember that tension that we exist in—we're citizens of a country, but we're also citizens of the kingdom. Uh, and, and Christianity has has suffered a loss of cultural pro- privilege and power in this country over the years. So when we look at how to respond to that, the big question for us as Christians is: What do we do about this loss of cultural power and privilege in society? If you look at Christianity in America, there's a spectrum in Christianity, and there's a spectrum of responses to this situation across the Christian spectrum. So for instance, uh, on the one hand, by and large, conservative Christians have been very anxious about this loss of cultural power, and therefore very willing to align with various political actors as a way of clinging to the cultural power that we've enjoyed in this country. Now here's the danger with that. Remember, social relevance and political power, those are cultural idols. So, the danger for us if we enthrone those things is that Christ, conservative Christianity is uh, prone to abandoning any possibility of being persecuted. And that does not mean that we shouldn't advocate for liberty. Of course, we should. Again, that's part of the legacy of Christianity in our world. But when we advocate for liberty, we should be advocating for the religious and civil liberties of all people, not just ourselves. There, there is a danger. For conservative Christianity in abandoning any possibility of being persecuted. But if you look at the other side of the spectrum, uh, in progressive Christianity, uh, there's a tendency to respond to these cultural shifts over the last 50 years by accommodating those shifts and um, compromising Um, and abandoning the commitments that have typically made us distinctive as Christians in society. So that might be theological commitments like the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, or moral commitments like sexual chastity. We could put it like this. If conservative Christianity is prone to resisting any possibility of being persecuted, progressive Christianity is prone to resisting any reason for being persecuted. And the reason is because we are all captive to cultural idols. And so the big question is how do we get free from that in order that we could serve Jesus, love Jesus and follow Jesus faithfully in this world? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the inevitability of persecution, we just looked at our resistance to persecution, but lastly we need to see the joy of persecution. Because not only does Jesus tell us that we're blessed if we're persecuted, in verse 12 he goes on to say rejoice and be glad in the gospel of Luke, he, he actually says, leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Now, at a surface level, this sounds like Jesus is saying, you should seek out persecution as a way of earning your place in heaven. In other words, this sounds like traditional religion. If you live a righteous life, if you make the ultimate sacrifice, then God will look kindly on your efforts and he will reward you with a place in heaven. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, it depends on what is the reward Jesus is talking about. Again, at a surface level, it sounds like Jesus is saying, well, heaven is the reward. And, and you do the things you do in this world in order to gain the reward you're really seeking, which is heaven. So in the logic of traditional religion, God really only exists as this independent third party who just happens to have the ability to grant you what you're really seeking, heaven. You know what happens when we do that? That turns us into mercenaries. It means you're not really loving God, seeking God, serving God, it it means we're using God to get what we really want, which is heaven. But friends, here's where the gospel is so different from traditional religion or any other approach to life. The gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And Jewish people historically have refrained from saying the name of God out of reverence for God. So when Jesus is talking about Um, blessed are those who are persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven and great is their reward in heaven. That's a Jewish way of saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of God and great is your reward with God. In other words, Jesus is saying, the goal you seek, the joy you pursue is not heaven, it's God. God is never just a means to an end. God is the end for which everything else is. Um, comes in second or third or fourth. And notice also that Jesus is talking in the present tense here. He says there is the kingdom of God right now. He's saying the presence and the joy of God is present and available to you right now. How can that be? Friends, it's because Jesus is present and available to you right now. Because Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is God He is our reward. Jesus is our joy. He is our joy. That means that that we endure persecution, not for the sake of earning some other joy. The reason we endure persecution is because Jesus already is our joy. Now, how does Jesus become your joy? Oh, dear ones, here are the deep things of the gospel. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. It's saying Jesus endured suffering. He endured torment. He endured persecution and death on the cross for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? It's you. You are Jesus's joy. And the cross is the ultimate place where he makes you his joy. Remember, idolatry... um, is is cultural idolatry. And and whenever we confront and expose and unmask cultural idolatry, it's going to result in persecution. On the cross, Jesus Christ unmasked the idols. He, He exposed the idols. He confronted them. And when you look at Jesus on the cross, what you see is a picture of what idolatry does to us. It twists us. It distorts us. Idolatry, it deforms and brutalizes us. But on the cross, Jesus bore our sins. He bore our idolatries in his body on the cross. That means Jesus was deformed and brutalized by our idolatry so that he could set us free from idolatry. Jesus broke the power of idolatry in our lives by being broken by our idolatry in our place. Friends, Jesus is your joy, and the more you see Jesus enduring suffering and persecution for you on the cross, the more you see Jesus on the cross making you his joy, then the more Jesus becomes your joy. And if Jesus is your joy, then you can face anything. I don't know if you've ever read the Harry Potter books, but at the very end of the series, there's a a big battle at night it's called the Battle of Hogwarts, where Harry and all his friends are fighting against the evil Lord Voldemort and the Death Eaters. And and at, right after the first battle, there's this um, part where Harry has this bone-chilling revelation that in order to truly defeat the evil Lord Voldemort, that he's going to have to go forward, face Voldemort in battle alone, and ultimately give his life. Harry realizes, "I must die." So he goes forward into the forest by himself, where he knows Voldemort is waiting for him. Immediately, a swarm of ghostly dementors fly right past him, and it stops Harry in his tracks. He realizes, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can go forward in this. I don't have the strength to face this. But then he discovers the magical resurrection stone which gives him the ability to see his deceased parents who died protecting him. Especially his mother Lily who who gave her life, who stood in between her baby Harry and Voldemort suffering the killing curse, Avada Kedavra, and giving her life in order to save her child. Harry sees his parents and when he sees them, he looks at them and he says, you'll stay with me? And his father says, until the very end. And then Harry looks at his mother, Lily. He feasts his eyes upon her, the one who gave her life for him, and he says, stay close to me. Stay close to me. And then he turns, he walks deeper into the forest, and it says their presence was his courage. And the reason that he was able to keep putting one foot in front of the other The presence and the joy of the one who gave her life for him gave Harry the the courage to face anything. Friends, how much more, if you had the presence and the joy of the God of the universe who gave his life for you, would you have the ability to face whatever comes at you? Friends, the more you see Jesus on the cross, suffering, persecution, suffering, and death for you, the more you experience Jesus on the cross making you his joy, then the more you will be able to make Jesus your joy, the more he will become your joy, the more you will be able to unmask and expose the idols of this world to endure the the persecution that comes along with that, all for the sake that countless others may come to see and to know and to love the same Jesus, the same joy, for themselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you today for you are our joy. And the only reason you can be our joy is because on the cross, you made us your joy. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this morning that you would help us, uh, Lord, to take our eyes off The dangers of this world, the persecutions of this world, um, the threats of this world, and to put our eyes on you, and that we would uh, see you, and that the more we would see you, the more that we would locate our joy in you, the more we would follow you, and that we would walk forward following you, Lord Jesus, wherever you might lead us, even if that means enduring some level of pushback or consequences or even persecution in this world uh, through the task of unmasking and confronting idolatry in this world. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you for the same reason you came into this world and suffered persecution, for the sake of this world, for the sake of your love for people in this world to set people free and bring them to yourself. We will pray all of these things in your name. Amen.